couple of weeks ago, King Cyrus allowed the exiles to return to Palestine to rebuild the temple. Now, not all the exiles chose to go, but everyone contributed silver and gold and other furnishings to the effort. And King Cyrus had all the gold and silver and other articles that Nebuchadnezzar had stolen brought out of his treasury for the exiles to take back with them to Jerusalem. And at this point, it's mostly just silver and gold bowls and some tableware, that kind of stuff. Now, according to Ezra chapter 2 and Nehemiah chapter 7, about 50,000 people returned to Palestine. Since Jerusalem had been completely destroyed, there is no place for all these people to live. So they scatter and each family goes back to their own hometown area in Judah. Before we dive into the story, though, I need to alert you that there are lots of books of Ezra out there, usually going by some version of the name Esdras. These other books are apocryphal some of which appear in various older translations of the Bible, and some of which were rejected entirely very early on. The numbering of all these other Ezra's is very confusing, and we're not going to cover them at all. You can find them easily online. I also want to point out that we have two similar words floating around. Apocryphal and apocalypse. Those are different words. They mean different things. Apocryphal has to do with the book's status as canon. If it is apocryphal, it may be accepted by some Christian streams and not by others. Apocalypse describes the book's subject matter. Apocalyptic literature is like Revelation and the stuff we've been reading in Daniel. For example, the second book of Esdras is apocryphal. It's not accepted as canon by all Christian streams, and its content is also apocalyptic, day of the Lord, end time sort of stuff. Oh, and one more thing. We already noticed that the other prophets in the Hebrew Bible, like Isaiah and Joel, talk here and there about the cataclysmic day of the Lord. They include apocalyptic elements in their writing, but Daniel is the first where the bulk of the book is an apocalypse. Daniel is the first of this new genre called apocalyptic writing. So this is just to make sure you don't confuse those two terms. And so, you know, um, kind of the background of where we stand. We're not going to cover any of the other books of Ezra, except the one in our Hebrew Bibles, which is the only one accepted as core canon by all streams of Christianity. We're reading this story in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. The books tell the backstory of how it came to be that the temple was rebuilt. They tell us the rebuilding of the temple begins in 537 BCE and takes over 20 years. But Ezra and Nehemiah themselves don't show up in their own books until the reign of King Artaxerxes, roughly 100 years later. Ezra will be sent to Jerusalem as a teacher of the law, while Nehemiah gets sent to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So first, first the, the, the temple is rebuilt, then there's a big gap of time, and then Ezra and Nehemiah come and the rebuilding of the walls happens. 
Ezra and Nehemiah are contemporaries and definitely work together in Jerusalem. The book of Nehemiah retells much of the story of Ezra, often in long passages that are direct quotes, so I'll be weaving the two stories together chronologically. The book of Ezra starts with the backstory of the rebuilding of the temple. The main characters are a priest named Joshua and a man named Zerubbabel, who is the grandson of King Jehoiakim, one of the last kings of Judah. Jehoiakim was the king who was taken into captivity and then later allowed out of prison and given a place at the Babylonian court. So Zerubbabel is his grandson. So both Joshua and Zerubbabel are very important people. They've been helping the former exiles get resettled in Palestine and get organized to begin work on the new temple. The first order of business is to rebuild the altar and get the daily and monthly sacrifices started up again. They also begin the cycle of sacred festivals like the Feast of Tabernacles, all those those festivals. Ezra chapter 3 tells us that once the altar is built, the Israelites come together in Jerusalem to begin the offerings, even though they have not yet laid the foundation of the temple itself. About six months later, the building of the temple begins in earnest under the supervision of Joshua and Zerubbabel. On the day the foundation is laid, The priests don their vestments and sound their trumpets and the Levites bang their cymbals and everyone sings, God is good. His love of Israel endures forever. But not everyone is full of joy. Those who are old enough to remember the first temple weep when they see how small the foundations of Zerubbabel's temple are. After the foundation is laid and celebrated, the workers begin building the temple walls. Some of the men, already living in Palestine, not not part of the exile community, come and offer to help build the temple, saying, we too worship your God. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the elders realize these men are enemies at heart. They are to sabotage the building effort, and they turn them down flat. In fact, All along, it's been evident that there's a lot of local hostility towards the effort. You can imagine the local people wondering if these 50,000 Jews flooding in from Babylon are planning to take over Palestine. The locals do everything they can to hinder progress and to intimidate the workers, even going so far as to bribe officials to interfere. And apparently, their opposition is stiff enough for work on the temple to stop completely. Meanwhile, there's been a change of kings back in Persia. Cyrus the Great has died and been succeeded by his son, Cambyses II. Cambyses dies suddenly of gangrene, leaving the Persian Empire in an uproar. There's a little intrigue involving his brother Smyrdes about whether he really is his brother or not, and Smyrdes only lasts a few months before he is overthrown by Darius the Great, who totally fabricates his right to the throne. Don't confuse him with Darius the Mede of Daniel's time. Darius the Mede is long gone. This new king, Darius the Great, turns out to be strong enough to hold on to the throne, and he is king in Persia while the temple is being rebuilt. 
It's here that two prophets come into the story. The first one is Haggai. His book is in the Bible. Haggai sees that no progress is being made on building the Lord's temple. So he confronts Zerubbabel and Joshua and says, think about what you're doing. Everyone is planting and eating and drinking and enjoying their homes, but they are not blessed. They earn wages, but put their money in a pocket with holes in it because we have not built the house of the Lord first. Much of Haggai's prophecy is along these lines, but woven throughout his book is a strong end time thread. The Lord says, I will shake the heavens and the earth and all the nations of the world. I will fill my house with glory even greater than that of the former temple. And in this place, I will grant peace. And I have chosen you, Zerubbabel, to be like my signet ring. So think about that for a second. How do kings use their signet rings? They use them as proof that what is in a document is their true word, right? They use them as an imprint on a seal as proof that this action has the full weight and authority of the king. The Lord is giving Zerubbabel full power and authority, and it signifies the Lord's serious intent to return to dwell among his people and grant them peace. At the same time, a second prophet named Zechariah arises. He also has a book in the Bible. Although he and Haggai certainly know each other, Zechariah's ministry lasts a lot longer. We'll run across him several times in Ezra and Nehemiah. His book is filled with important end-time prophecy, as well as prophecy specifically for Joshua and Jerubbabel. On the night of February 16th, 519 BCE, Zechariah has a series of eight visions. In the first vision, he sees a man who turns out to be the angel of the Lord. So it's the Lord himself in human form, mounted on a red horse in a ravine among myrtle trees with red, brown, and white horses behind him. And there's also another man there, an angel, who acts as a sort of intermediary between the Lord and Zechariah. There's one place in verse 12 where the wording gets confusing. The Lord often talks about himself in third person in prophecy. You, you may have noticed that as we've gone through prophecy. The Lord often calls himself the Lord, so don't let that throw you off. In verse 13, it becomes clear that the Lord is the one on the red horse, and he's talking to the angel who is explaining things to Zechariah. I have no idea what the significance of the myrtle trees or the colors of the horses are. Maybe they're all along the lines of wax myrtles, or the myrtle trees may be related to our own crepe myrtles that we're familiar with here in Texas. They bloom in red and white, so maybe there's some significance to these colors being the same as the colors of the horses. I, there's no way to tell. As far as I know, the meaning of the colors and the myrtles has been lost to the mists of time. So Zechariah is looking at all these horses and he asks what their significance is. And it turns out that these horses have gone throughout the world, finding it at peace. 
And the angel with Zechariah asks if the Lord will finally have compassion on Judah and Jerusalem now that the 70 years is up. And the Lord says, yes, my house will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. The other nations went too far. They punished my people far more than my anger called for. I will comfort my people and they will prosper. Then Zechariah sees four horns. We know what that imagery means. We know that horns represent kings. Nevertheless, Zechariah is smart. He asks what the horns mean. And the Lord tells him they are the horns that scattered Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem. So that's a that's an interpretation of spiritual view. So the Lord is, is saying that it's literally the these nations that scattered my people. So I presume these horns represent Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia. Then Zechariah sees four craftsmen. The word means something like a blacksmith. The Lord tells him these four craftsmen will terrify and overthrow the nations who crushed God's people. And I think that makes a ton of sense historically, because the nation that takes over the world next will be the Greeks under Alexander the Great. And his strength, as you know, is in his four generals who ultimately become kings in their own right. Craftsmen would be a good spiritual symbol for them. Next, Zechariah sees a man with a measuring tape in his hand. And Zechariah asks, where are you going? And the man says, oh, I'm going to measure Jerusalem's width and length. But as he leaves, another man comes running up to tell the angel with Zechariah, run, stop the one with the measuring tape. You you kind of have to read between the lines here a little, but essentially what he says is, wait, there's no need to measure Jerusalem because it's not going to have any walls. It will be too big to have walls. We learned about that back in Ezekiel, remember? And the Lord says here, I myself will be a wall of fire around it and will be the glory within it. In that day, many nations will join the Lord and will become my people. So let's just sit with that for a moment. In that day is in time language. And the idea of regathering the nation of Israel is the whole middle section of this chapter. And I I haven't put it on this slide, but that's the whole middle section. And then um, here we see again, a theme I've pointed out several times in the prophets, the bald statement that the Lord's people will be made up of many more nations than just Israel. Not too long ago, we read Isaiah 19.25, where Egypt and Assyria are specifically named as two such nations. God is out to gather the entire world to himself, anyone who will come. And how about Jerusalem not needing any walls because the Lord himself will be a wall of fire around it? Uh, I'm going to break one of my own rules, don't tell, and skip ahead to give you a little piece of revelation. Because this prophecy of Zechariah's will probably completely shift your understanding of the verse in Revelation. And I think it's too important to wait for. At the very end of Revelation, after heaven and earth have passed away and a new Jerusalem comes, 
Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I'm abbreviating what he has to say here to focus on the parts that are pertinent to Zechariah. He says, those who wash their robes will be able to enter the gates of the city. And we'll find out later when we compare this part of Revelation 22 to the parallel verses in Revelation 21 that he's talking about water from the spring of life, that living water Jesus always talks about. Then he says that outside the gates of the city are the murderers, the adulterers, those who love to lie, et cetera, et cetera. It's a typical New Testament vice list where the individual items on the, on the list are not the point. It's simply um, uh, a, a literary technique. It's a way to identify evil in whatever form it may take. So what's being said here is that inside the city gates are those who are washed in living water and are able to enter the city. And outside is anyone who loves evil. So let's compare that to what the Lord tells Zechariah. The Lord tells Zechariah that Jerusalem won't need walls at that time because he himself will be a wall of fire around it. And knowing what we know about the fire of the Lord, knowing that it is a refining fire, this makes total sense. If you pass through that refining fire, all the evil will be burned away and all that will be left will be holy. Zechariah's prophecy is vital for understanding what Jesus is saying in Revelation. I don't think Jesus's words are intended as a punishment to those outside the gates of the city. I think it is a terrible sorrow to God that they are left outside. And I think this is an invitation. It's the same invitation God has extended all the way through the Hebrew Bible. It is good news for all who are caught up in evil. Anyone who wants to can wash their robes in living water and accept the invitation to draw near to God. We can live in this holy fire in the presence of God now, and we will joyfully pass through it then. It is a huge blessing if we choose to accept it. I think this is amazing, but don't go to Revelation and get all hung up in it. We'll revisit this when we get there. But these statements of the Lord in Zechariah are mind-blowing, and I wanted to share their end-time significance with you. They reveal the magnitude and expansiveness of God's glory and grace. In his fourth vision of the night, Zechariah sees the priest Joshua and the angel of the Lord. Now, I have no idea what the angel of the Lord looks like to Zechariah. The, the angel of the Lord usually looks like a very important man when we've run across him in uh, scripture before. But for clarity, I'm going to represent him here with this burning sun. Zechariah sees that Joshua is dressed in filthy clothes. The word filthy here has a connotation of excrement. And the Lord says that the filth is Joshua's sin. And guess who else is present? The adversary. Hasatan, what we've abbreviated to the English word Satan. So does the Lord hand sinful Joshua over to the adversary? No, he does not. 
Instead, the Lord defends Joshua, snatching him away from Satan, and he rebukes Satan, saying, Joshua is like a burning stick snatched from the fire. I rebuke you, Satan. Now, this brief appearance, plus that opening scene in Job, plus one single reference stuck in 1 Chronicles, where the adversary tempts David into taking a census of his fighting men and therefore measuring the Lord's strength. That's the sum total of Satan in the Hebrew Bible. That is it. Just as the Israelites had no concept of a fiery hell, they also had no concept of a personified Satan stage managing all the evil in the world. These brief one-off glimpses of a personified Satan are very rare and are probably foreign cultural inserts. They have no roots in the soil of the Hebrew Bible. It's important that we take this to heart. The Hebrew Bible has plenty of evil in it, evil men, evil nations, and evil actions, but the evil is their own doing and their own choice, and it is always God who makes provision for them to forsake evil, to draw near to him, to be protected, and to be cleansed. In the Hebrew Bible, as in Paul's beautiful statement in Romans 8, there is nothing whatsoever, no evil of any kind and no power of any kind that can separate us from the God who loves us. And that is exactly what Zechariah witnesses in this fourth vision. The Lord banishes the adversary and says to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin. Notice once again, the Lord simply removes his sin. Joshua didn't do anything, no crucifixion, no sacrifice of atonement involved. Then the Lord has Joshua dressed as a priest in fine clothes and has a new cloth turban put on his head. Then the Lord his, his title specifically changes here in the Hebrew. He speaks as the Lord of hosts, basically giving Joshua his marching orders, saying, if you will walk with me and keep watch, you will be a judge placed in charge of my courts. You and those with you are signs of things to come. I am bringing my servant, the branch. Well, we recognize that language for sure. The Lord is talking about in time, things to come. And, and that is definite messianic language. We've seen it before. This servant is the Messiah. Then the Lord points out that he set a special stone in front of Joshua. Now, this stone has seven eyes on it. We already know what the number seven means. It means wholeness, completeness, and perfection. So this stone with seven eyes sees everything. It, in its wholeness and completeness, it sees perfectly and sees what actually is. So it's no surprise when we find out in the next chapter that this stone is something very special indeed. And I have to say that I think another way to interpret it, this would be this stone has the seven eyes, the attention of the seven eyes, not the stone itself has seven eyes, but that it has the attention of the seven eyes. I think you could read this either way. 
But remember, we're in a vision right now. We're not seeing things literally or physically. We're seeing the spiritual reality. We're about to find out that this stone is called the chosen capstone to be set in place at the completion of the temple. And in Zechariah's vision, when this capstone is brought out, there are great shouts of blessing. Think Hosanna in the highest. And we find out that the seven eyes are the eyes of the Lord that see throughout all the earth. And these eyes rejoice when they see this capstone. So if we combine this capstone imagery with the fact that all of this is said and done immediately after the Lord talks about the arrival of his servant, the branch, I really think it is inescapable that this capstone of the temple represents the Messiah. Jesus. I don't see how it could be anything or anyone else, given the context. And to put a fine point on it, the Lord then says, I will engrave its engraving on this stone, and I will wipe away the sin of this land in a single day. Now that sounds like the crucifixion, doesn't it? Simply amazing, more than 500 years before Christ. And all this is good news because the Lord says, in that day, you will invite each other over to sit together in your yards. I mean, this is the picture of utter peace and contentment. That finishes up what the Lord has to say to the high priest, Joshua. But now God has something to say to Zerubbabel. At this point, the angel with Zechariah wakes him up and says, what do you see? And Zechariah says, well, I see a gold lampstand with seven lamps fed by two gold pipes of golden oil. And, and there's one olive tree on the right and another on the left. What are these things? Well, the angel doesn't reply directly. Instead, he has a word from the Lord for Zerubbabel. Now, we know that Zerubbabel must be feeling pretty discouraged at this point. He's run into all sorts of adversity, trying to lay the foundation for the temple. And the elders even cried in sorrow because his foundation looked so pathetic. And now work has completely stopped because of all the local opposition. He must feel like a complete failure. But here in this vision, we get to see behind the scenes we get to see with spiritual eyes how the Lord sees the situation. The Lord says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. The mighty mountain will be made level before Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel started this temple and he will finish it. You see, the Lord is saying to Zerubbabel, you laid the foundation of this temple and you will set the capstone to finish it. You do not have to overcome this mountain of op opposition. I will do it for you. Then the Lord says, who will despise the day of small things? I think the Lord is talking about how pitiful the foundation of the temple seems to everyone when in reality, spiritually, it is the most glorious thing that has ever happened to the Jews, and its capstone is none other than Jesus. Jesus may appear meek and humble, but Jesus is no small thing 
at all. So the angel never does say exactly what the lampstand is, but it's got seven lamps and seven channels of oil. And since lamps are how we see in the dark, I think we can safely correlate them with the seven eyes of the Lord. I think the stone with the seven eyes and the lampstand with the seven lamps are symbols of the same thing, but it's certainly open to interpretation. Then Zechariah asked the angel, well, what are those two olive trees? And the angel tells him the two olive trees are the sons of oil who stand fast beside the Lord of all the earth. Now, remember, this statement is an interpretation of the vision. Zechariah asked what the olive trees mean. So this, the angel is telling Zechariah what the olive trees represent. This is the literal, physical, earthly view. So since this whole prophecy is primarily a word of encouragement to Zerubbabel and to Joshua, they are undoubtedly the two sons of oil. They are being shown that they are standing next to the Lord of hosts and that their oil, perhaps representing their effort, is integral to what God is doing. And God is doing a very great thing. Remember that back in chapter three, the Lord said, that Joshua and Zerubbabel and their associates are signs of thing, are a sign of things to come, as in end time things to come. And later in Revelation, we'll find the end time parallel to this particular passage. The Lord explicitly tells Zechariah that this prophecy is a pretz, what we call pretzel time prophecy, where the past present, and future integrate. It has a fulfilling in Zechariah's time, and it will have a fulfilling in the end time. Now that's some mind-blowing stuff. (laughs) We don't have time to finish the rest of Zechariah's visions today. We'll do that next week. We have to stop here for now and maybe reflect on on that last phrase, that last question from the Lord, who dares despise the day of small things? Did you have a good discussion? I think so. Yes. Talk to me about it. I was just getting ready to say something when we, when we had to exit. <laughs> um, somebody had made a comment about um, society looks to the people who do the grand things and expects the grand things. And I was thinking about that. One of the challenges that I had prior to retiring, which has just been a year now was that we get so caught up in things that make us busy and and there's a lot of pressure on us. So for example, the pressure that was put on me at work just flat out exhausted me such that even little things were really difficult. And I think that, that, that that's one of the adversities that I felt for a long time um, was having allowed work to take over um, really put a damper on even small things because I was just so tired. Kindness and, you know, general 
um, get through the day in a, <clears throat> in a positive way with other people around me. Sure. But, but not, not nearly what I looking back feel like might have been possible in, in small ways that add up um, because we've bought in, I, we, I'm going to say we have gotten caught up in um, things that don't let us just relax and have family time or get together with our extended family or, or whatever it is. It's got to be great big or it's just not a happening thing. And, and I, I think that our commercial capitalism society has um, intentionally or unintentionally um, wrested that from us. Um, I agree, but I also feel that we need to actively take our power back in that because we do have choice. Mm-hmm. That's, why, that's why I became part of the Great Resignation. <laughs> I left earlier than I had told my company I was going to because I, I said, I'm not doing it this way anymore. I was very fortunate to be able to do that. Yeah, and sometimes I think you get trapped in that in that you know hamster wheel, um, and can't find the exit, and and um, and just exhaust yourself. Yeah, I think I think um, modern society is really good at making us think it's absolutely crucial that we continue to to run at the pace that we're running and never and that it's wrong to step back, to breathe, to rest, to do self-care, to focus on doing the little things. Because those aren't important. It's the big things that matter. If you keep the big things, then why bother? I've learned that the hard way. I worked private practice and then I got laid off and I took a year and a half off. And then I went to a company, well, the state and it's the best job ever. It's not like that. And I'll call Woody out on this one. I used to, he would ask me to do something. I'd be like, do I need to stay late? And, and I wrote it on post-it note the day he told me, you don't need to stay late. If I ask you to do something, just please do it, you know, like in the next day or two. And I wrote the date and the time down and I stuck it up on my <laughs> You know, it's probably still there with about two years worth of dust on it. (laughs) But it was a hard lesson for me to learn because when someone asked you to do something, having had been in that other world, it was do it now, get it done. You're not doing anything else. I had to reconfigure my whole thoughts to dial it back. And, you know, I, I had come from being paralegal extraordinaire to going, you know what? I think the staff attorneys do that and I need to not step on their toes and I need to dial it back. And that was a hard lesson for me because I wanted to do everything for everybody. And nope, nope. I just keep a lot of menus at my desk now. And I, do what's asked of me. 
I think we're all in a similar generation thing and in study, a lot of studying that I'm doing on trauma, one of the things I'm finding is that culturally, most of us grew up in a house where the pressure on the man was this breadwinner to succeed and women had a lot of pressure to please. Uh And so, you know, even though you want, because, and then it leads us to over-functioning because I over-functioned in my job. And what I'm hearing you say is that you were over-functioning in your job. And then we wonder why we're all on burnout. You know, it's. Yeah. And, and so if we take it back to what Gail is saying to us, uh, I mean, even in that, I think we've identified an adversity in our life and, you know, we need to take care of ourselves in order to take care of other people. And I think that, you know, as Marlene was talking about that, the re or no, 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 I'm sorry. Um, I don't remember who was just saying it when I said that we have the ability to take back control. I think that I see the younger generation, um, I don't remember what gen they're called now, um, are, is really kind of focusing on not overdoing it, self-care and kindness. Every young person I see anymore has, you know, in a world where you can be anything, be kind shirts. And I love that message. And I think, um, I don't know where I was going with that. I'm sorry. Well, I would, I would like to, to, to just point out here that, that there is a lot of self-help books and a lot of, uh, a lot of, of therapy and things out in the world saying we need to pull back. We need to, you know, do all these things for self-care, but they don't fill in the gap that leaves of the sense of purpose and of fulfillment and of who am I anyway, you know, and that's what Zechariah is getting to here. That's what the Lord is getting to here. The Lord is, is they, the Lord is talking, is saying, I see what you're doing through different eyes. Right. As long as you are drawing close to me, as long as you're doing the best you can with, with what, you know, you think that I'm asking you to do, you know, right. I, it's not by your power that things get done. It doesn't matter that it looks like a complete failure. It is a great thing if I'm doing it. And, and, and that completely takes the pressure of the goal orientation off of us. The Lord says, I set the goal. I make it happen. Your job, remember what he said to Joshua and Zerubbabel, you are the sons of oil standing fast beside me. Can I share a story um, related to that? Um, My parents were missionaries with Wycliffe Bible translators and the, the indigenous group that we were assigned to down in Brazil was a group that was in transition. So they were losing a lot of their their own language and culture and being absorbed more by every generation more into the Brazilian culture. So it wasn't one of those places where they were going to spend 20 years translating the entire Bible and teaching people how to read their own language and that sort of thing. But 
I did not realize this until just a few years ago. My dad had this expectation as a missionary that he was going to lead this tremendous experience within the tribe of, of, you know, the aha moment where everyone would accept Christ and there would be this huge cultural change. And that never happened. There were a few members of the tribe who did become Christian, but they had to leave the tribe in order to be able to live as Christians because there was a cultural um, ostracism that took place if they left the, the traditional faith. And it wasn't until like a year or two before my dad died that we were having a conversation one day and he sort of admitted to me that he felt like a failure as a missionary. But it was right about the time that he had been contacted by a young woman who was the granddaughter of one of the Native women who worked with my mom when we were there in the 1960s. Um, She found him on Facebook and she contacted him and said, I always grew up hearing stories about your family from my grandmother and many of us in the tribe still know about you because the people who knew you have talked to us about you our whole lives. And then later, um, another young man contacted me, who found me through my dad's page, and said, we are planning on building a cultural center here in our village to help preserve some of our history and tradition, and we want to name it after your father. Wow. Because of the work that he did here. And when I told my dad that, I said, Dad, you had no idea the impact that you and mom and the family had on these people just by being there and living there and caring for the people and, and taking the time to learn their language and to learn about them. And your measuring stick was not God's measuring stick of what you accomplished in that tribe. You are remembered three generations down from the people that you had contact with. That's an amazing story. Thank uh, you. I think something like that is, is true for really for all of us who try to live our lives as followers of Christ. There are a million, a billion small things that we never know what impact uh, they have on other people. Yeah, we talked about that in our group that, you know, what we think may be super small seeds, you just don't know what they grow to be. Small stones with big ripples, we we don't know. And so it caught thinking, oh, what I'm doing is not that significant. And I mean, yeah, I'm not Marlene's dad, but you don't know. Right. He never, he never saw it. He never, he never, he, he left that tribe thinking he'd been a failure as a missionary. A similar, not that big a story, not a big story. It's a little story. (laughs) When my daughter, who is now 28, was five, I had a little choir at church called the Cherub Choir. Um, There were approximately, I don't know, eight or 10 little girls, all the same age. And they were my chair of choir. And every Sunday night we met and sang songs and they would sing songs for the church. And, you know, that's what we did. Um, I did little projects with them and, you know, art projects and stuff like that, but we sang songs. That's what we did. I was substitute teaching in middle school years later. 
um, when my daughter was in middle school. And this young lady came up to me. I was subbing in her class and she came up to me and she said very quietly, because she didn't want the class to know she knew the substitute teacher. (laughs) I know you. And I looked at her and I said, I'm sorry, you look familiar, but I just can't place it. And she said, you led my little choir when I was five and the light bulb went off. I knew who she was then. This little girl was from a family that was in turmoil. Her parents divorced. Her mother got custody. Her mother would not allow her to go to church and her life kind of sucked. (laughs) She said, I remember you because you loved me. And it was all I could do to finish teaching that class. Because one little girl remembered that when she was five, I loved her. That's what we're here for. That's why we live. And that's why we, who, who dares despise the day of small things? Right. So it's good. I think we've got several people that need to leave. Mm -hmm. This is something to carry in your heart and use as your measuring stick. (laughs) Um, Measuring what, you know, just, just hold this in your heart. Thank you for, for sharing these stories. I love you all. Bye. Bye everybody.